The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Well, um, for many of us, last night, March Madness turned to March Sadness, didn't it? Uh, Several... uh, March Madnesses ago, there was a coach named Jim Valvano, Jimmy V, as many people know him. And he was once being interviewed by a reporter. And Jimmy V looked back over his career and he told a story about when he was a 23-year-old coach at a small college team. And Valvano was so driven to win that his players asked him, why is winning so important to you? And Valvano responded, because the final score defines you. Because the final score defines you. You lose, you're a loser. Oh, that hurts today, doesn't it? You win, you're a winner. The final score defines you. Let me ask you this question. What defines you? What defines you? You know, identity is an interesting thing. I think all of us are desperately trying to discover, to develop, to put forth or maintain a certain identity. We're trying to communicate to the world that we are winners. We're trying to communicate to the world that we have value, that we have worth, that we have purpose. Sadly, our identity is so often controlled by life's circumstance. If we have a job and we're successful at it, we're a winner. If we're unemployed, we're a loser. If you have a girlfriend, winner. No girlfriend, loser. If your business is successful, winner. Average, loser. If you're valedictorian, winner. Straight C's, like me, loser. If you're prom queen, winner. If you don't get invited to the dance, loser. There's six seconds left in the final four game. And if you hit the winning shot, you're a winner. But if it clangs off the rim, loser. In Colossians 2, Paul shows us that in Christ, we have a greater identity. We have an identity that is not defined by the world's achievements. We do not have an identity that wavers, that fluctuates, that changes. Rather, we have an identity that is sure in Christ, that satisfies us now and for all eternity. If you would please turn to Colossians chapter 2. We're continuing to work our way through the book of Colossians. If you're in the Red Bible, it's page 984. In the Children's Bible, it's page 1457. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 15 this week. Last week, we started discussing our union with Jesus. That we have already been made complete. That part of our identity in Christ is that we are filled ones, that we have been made full in Christ, that the fullness of deity dwells in Christ, and Christ dwells in us, and we have been made full. 
This week, Paul elaborates on what it means to be in Christ. He elaborates in communicating to Christians, reminding them of their identity in Christ. Their unshakable, unbreakable, everlasting identity in Christ. And so let this text be a reminder to you today who trust in Christ that the world cannot dictate who you are because your identity is dictated by God in Jesus Christ. Let's read together verse 11 through 15. In him, Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. God, as we come to your word today, we confess that we wrap our identity in so many things that are just sinking sand. And so many things that are hollow, God. Do people like the things that we're doing? Do they think I'm worthy and valuable? Am I a person that people want to hang out with? Lord God, let us find that rock-solid identity that comes only in and with and through Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen. I'm not sure if it's okay to have favorite verses in the Bible, but these are some of my favorite verses in the Bible. And I'm so excited to dive into them and dig into them. And we've, we've walked through this passage before to talk about the connection between circumcision and baptism. Today, we're not going to do that because those are just the signs. They're signs of a greater reality, a greater truth. And so today, we want to look at those greater truths. Paul reminds us of those glorious truths, of who we are in Christ, of our identity in Christ. We are filled in Christ. We are dead in Christ. We are alive in Christ. We are forgiven in Christ, and we are victors in Christ. And so today, if you trust in Christ for your salvation, let's look and see what your identity is in Christ. First off, we are dead in Christ. Paul tells us that one of the greatest benefits of our union with Jesus Christ is that we are dead in Christ. Now, this isn't something we think about often, you know. Jacob's well mission statement isn't dead in Christ, Christ in death, like that. It's life in Christ, Christ in life, right? Death isn't something that we typically think about. But as we talked about in the baptism, there are two signs given to God's covenant of grace, the sign of circumcision and the sign of baptism. And in both of those, as Paul is going to show us today, is revealed this glorious truth that in Christ, you are dead. In Christ, you are dead. Let's first look by the Old Testament sign of God's covenant grace, the sign of circumcision. Verse 11, Paul says this, in him, Christ, 
Also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now, this is a very interesting statement because Paul is writing to probably Gentile Christians who may or may not have never been circumcised physically. And yet Paul is saying, you have been circumcised, but without hands. He says, by putting off the body of the flesh. Now, this phrase body of the flesh is kind of a play on words. But it isn't talking about the human body. It is talking about the human heart. The NIV actually translates this in the putting off of the sinful nature. This body of the flesh that Paul is talking about is our corrupt nature, our sinful nature that we are born with. You know, many of us think, many people think, that we become sinners because we sin, right? We sin, 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 sin. And so after we sin, then we become sinners, But when you look at the scriptures, it's actually quite the opposite. You're born a sinner, and so you sin. Sinner is your identity. It's who you are. It's what comes naturally to you. It's what comes naturally to me. You know, all you have to do to understand that we are born sinners is look to children, right? I mean, I don't think any parents here If you are, I mean, we need to talk. But I don't think anyone here is teaching their kids how to throw a punch, right? You're not teaching them, you know, go for the head. It causes more pain, right? I don't think any parents here are teaching their children how to collapse on the ground when you don't get your way and convulse until you do get your way, right? I I hope no parents here are teaching their kids to do that. I don't think any parents here are teaching their kids that when it's bedtime, just pretend like your legs don't work anymore, right? Like, I hope you're not teaching your kids that. Why don't you have to teach your kids that? Because it comes naturally. They are cute and adorable, but do not be fooled. They are naturally born sinners. Naturally born sinners, just like you and just like me. Sin comes so easily. We do not have to teach our kids to sin. What we have to teach our kids to do is to have manners, right? We have to teach our kids to have manners because sin comes naturally. We sin because we are born sinners. It's not that we become sinners because we sin. We sin because we are born sinners. And this applies to every single one of us. Selfishness and sin come so naturally to us because this is who we are from birth. Now, how are we in verse 11? It says, in Christ, you're circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh, the sinful nature. How are we circumcised in that way? Well, he tells us by the circumcision of Christ. Physical circumcision in the Old Testament, just like baptism in the New Testament is a sign that points to a greater reality. The circumcision it pointed to was not a circumcision of the flesh, but a circumcision of the heart. There are several verses in the Old Testament that refer to this. Here's just one. Jeremiah 4.4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your heart. Romans 2.28-29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. In the Old Testament, the foreskin was a token of our corrupt nature, and it was to be cut off, to be put away. And this was not only to be a physical circumcision, but we were to have 
a spiritual and a heart circumcision. Paul is telling us that if you are in Christ, Christ has cut off in your heart the sinful nature in you. Yes, you may still sin, but you are no longer a sinner. That is no longer your identity. He has put it to death. No longer does sin have mastery over you. And so the first sign of covenant, God's covenant of grace was circumcision. But as it grew and it matured, and we see a more full picture of God's covenant of grace, the sign grew, the sign matured, the sign displayed more than just that. And so not only is our sinful nature cut off, it's also buried. Look with me in verse 11. Again, it says, In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism. Paul clearly articulates the sign of the covenant of grace. Baptism communicates that in Christ, our old nature has been put to death. That it has been cast away. That it has been buried. Romans chapter 6 parallels Colossians 2 very closely. And so we're going to read from it a few times. But in Romans chapter 6 verse 3 it says this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We know that our old self was crucified with him. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And so for a non-Christian, for someone whose identity is sinner, sin makes sense. It's who they are. It what comes out, out of them naturally. Yes, they might do noble things and honorable things because they're made in the image of God. But sin comes so naturally. It's like a fish swimming in water. But for you who are in Christ, you who trust in Christ, Sin makes no sense at all because your identity is no longer sinner. As Romans 6 goes on, verse 12 says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Sin makes no sense for Christians. Because our sinful nature has been circumcised. It has been cut off and it has been buried. Now, I don't know about you, but I still struggle with sin. Even though it doesn't make sense, even though it's foolish, I still struggle deeply with sin. And this passage is a reminder to you and to me that sin no longer has dominion over our life. Sinner is no longer who we are. That that has been circumcised. It has been cut off. It has been buried. That we are no longer under the authority and dominion of sin. And so we see our identity is that we are dead in Christ. It goes on. Our identity is also that we are alive in Christ. Verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Ephesians 2.1 tells us very clearly that we are dead in our sins. 
And so before we are united with Christ, not only is our identity that we are a sinner, but it is also that we are spiritually dead, that we have no affection for the one true God. We have no inclination to worship the one true God. Church is a bore. Scripture is like a dictionary. We have no desire for God. Prayer is the most awful thing in the world. It is a waste of time if you do not know Christ. Because you have no longing, no affection, no life, no desire for the one true God. We are dead in our affections to God. We are dead in our capacity to turn to God, to worship God, to serve the one true God. And as we discussed in the last point, for those who are in Christ, this deadness has been circumcised. It has been cast away. It has been buried. And so there is left inside us this vacancy. But God fills it. Galatians 2.20 says it very succinctly. I have been crucified with Christ, put to death. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It is not so much that God has made you alive, but that Christ has come alive in you. That Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, who has buried and raised again, now lives inside of you. And because Christ lives in you, you are made alive. You are raised up with him. Now, how does this happen? Maybe you're here today and you say, you know, I want that. I want that life in Jesus Christ. I don't want to be defined by my sin. I want to be defined by the righteousness of God. How can this happen? Well, verse 12 tells us, in which you were also raised with them through faith. Through faith. Faith in what? Faith in faith? Faith in karma? No. Through faith and the powerful working of God who raised Christ from the dead. The object of our faith must be God. It must be the power of God, who was so powerful that he raised Christ from the dead. Why must it be in the powerful, resurrecting work of God that we must have faith? Because we have to believe that God can take someone like me, someone like you, who is opposed to him, who has rejected him all of our life, and yet still has the power to raise this life up from the dead. And so we get this life, we get this new identity through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in the powerful working of God that raised him from the dead. Romans 6 goes on in verse 5. It says, for if we have been united with Christ in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So that you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, earlier we said for a non-Christian, it makes sense to sin because our nature is sinner. But for a Christian... It doesn't make sense because we are no longer dead in our sins. We are no longer under the dominion of sin, but we have been made alive in Christ. Let me illustrate this way. If you saw a caterpillar on branch A, right? Or let's say you were a caterpillar. If you're a caterpillar on branch A and you wanted to get to branch B, 
it would make sense, right, that you would crawl all the way back to the trunk of the tree and you crawl all the way back out the branch to get to where you wanted to go, right? It would make sense because you're a caterpillar. But if you were transformed, if you were, if your identity was changed to a butterfly and you're on branch A and you wanted to get branch B and you decided to walk all the way down one branch and across the trunk and all the way up the other branch, we would say that is foolish. It makes no sense because it is no longer your identity. You are a butterfly. You were not made to crawl. You're made to fly. For those of you who are in Christ, your old nature has been crucified. It has been buried. It has been circumcised. And you have been made alive in Christ. You have no longer been made to dwell in sin, but live on to God. Let me ask you, where in your life, if you trust in Christ for your salvation, are you acting like you're dead? You know, as temptation comes along, whether we're tempted to cheat on a test, whether we're tempted to lie, whether we're tempted to slander, whatever we're tempted to do, and that flashpoint, at that moment, we can remember that's what dead people do. That's what sinners do. But that's not me. By the grace of God, I'm a saint. By the grace of God, I've been made alive. And we can live as those whose identity is in Christ. So what are the benefits of our union with Christ? What is our identity in Christ? We are dead in Christ. Our old flesh has been buried. We have been made alive in Christ, resurrected to new life that we might live on to him. Thirdly, we are forgiven in Christ. If in the first point, we were told that we were released from the power of sin, here we are reminded that we are released from the penalty, penalty of sin. Verse 13, halfway through, he says this. <coughs> Excuse me. God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. In the Old Testament, God, by his grace and his mercy and his love, gave us the law. And it's summarized in the Ten Commandments. God says things like, you shall have no other gods before me. And yet, if we are honest, we worship things like comfort, like money, like sports. God says, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. But then we stub our toe or we step on a Lego or whatever it might be. God says, observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And yet we treat it like any other day. Or we make it contingent on a sports schedule. God says, honor your father and your mother. And yet we're short with them. And when they're gone, we criticize them. God says, do not covet. And then our neighbor gets a new car. And instead of celebrating with them, we're mad and we're angry because we don't have that car. See, those are just the first five. And these are all good laws. None of these are oppressive. None of these are bad. All of these are great. And yet we have failed at every single one. Every time you have broken God's law, either in your action or in your inaction, either in your words or in your thoughts, whenever you have broken the law of God, all of your life, God knows. And there is a record of that sin. It is a record of your debt. Surely it must be an expansive book 
I know mine would be. And yet the good news is this, that God still maintains his justice because as it says here, this, this record of debt, he set aside. Literally, he took it away. He removed the barrier, nailing it to the cross. Last week, I uh, went to lunch with Preston. Is Preston here? Did I do it again? There he is. All right. And we went to the Deerfield Diner, right? And after we get done eating our lunch, the waitress brings us our deed of indebtedness, right? Our bill. Here, this is what you owe, and you cannot leave until you pay this. And so I go up to the cash register, and I go to pay, and they say, well, we don't take credit cards up here, so you have to go in the back. So I went to the back part where there's a little, um, I don't know, a bar, I guess, coffee bar. And I pay the woman in full for my tab. And when it's paid in full, she takes the debt and she slams it down through a nail, right? And that's how we know that the debt had been paid. And so now I can walk out of that restaurant and no one can come to me and say, his debt has not been paid. His debt has not been paid. He has to pay his bill. Stop that guy, right? (coughs) The debt had been paid. There is a debt against you that no credit card can pay. There is a debt against you that no bank account can cover. There is a debt against you that no amount of cash can pay for. It is the record of the debt of your guilt, your shame, your sin. And each and every one of them alone by themselves requires and is punishable by death and the pains of hell for all eternity. Each and every single one alone. And yet you have volumes of them. How are you going to pay this debt? How will you get out from under this burden, from this death sentence? And the answer is, you can't. You are helpless. And you are hopeless under this burden of debt. Unless, of course, someone else pays for it on your behalf. Unless, of course, someone else picks up the tab. Your sinless Savior, Jesus Christ, had no debt of his own because he had never sinned. And yet, in the greatest love the world has ever known, Jesus picked up your tab. Jesus took on your debt. He took the record that stood against you and bore it on himself at the cross. And he paid for it in full. Your record of debt condemns you and stands against you. Your record of debt is a death warrant that opposes you. The only question is, who is going to pay it? It will be paid either by you or by Christ. Who will pay this debt that stands against you? The good news is that Christ takes on our debt when we are in Christ and we are fully forgiven. Finally, we are victorious in Christ. Verse 15 starts like this. It says, uh, well, actually, before I get to that, we are victorious in Christ. When you get, when you die and you go to meet your, meet your maker, you have to give an account for everything you've done in your life. And as you go to give an account before God, the accuser will be there. Satan, one of Satan's name is he is the accuser. And this accuser can pull out this great volume, this great deed of indebtedness that stands against you. And he can shove it in the face of God. And for once in his life, the father of lies does not have to lie. You've actually made his job very easy. 
He just takes your record of debt, your record of sin, and he hands it before God. And he says, how can you let this man into heaven? How can you let him dwell with you for all eternity? Look at his sin. You cannot handle this, God. This sin is something that cannot be in your presence. Shame on him. Shame, shame, shame. Cast him away into utter darkness. And God would be completely justified to do so. This record of death that stands against you is Satan's arsenal. It is all the power he has to fight against God and his church and his saints. And then in verse 15, we read this. Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities, meaning Satan and his demons. Chris, excuse me, Christ, not you, Chris. Christ disarmed Satan. I didn't get much sleep last night. I don't know about you, but. It's hard to fall asleep after a loss like that. Anyways, Christ disarmed Satan. He took away that deed of indebtedness. He took it away. And what we read is he put them to open shame, Satan and the demons, by triumphing over them in Christ. In ancient times, when the Romans went to war, when they defeated a king, They would parade the king and the surviving warriors from the enemy, and they would parade them through the town with all of the spoils, and they would parade them through the streets of Rome as a public spectacle for everybody to see, for everybody to mock, for everybody to laugh at. Jesus Christ, in the face of the whole universe, gloriously triumphed over all the powers of hell in a great victory. In view of the whole cosmos, Jesus humiliated Satan and his legion of demons. There's a famous sermon that was, that was spoken, I don't know, several years ago. I don't even know who the guy is that, that said it, but it goes like this. I'm actually just taking segments of it. You can Google it if you want. But he says this, it's Friday. Those Roman soldiers are flogging our Lord with a leather scourge that has bits of bones and glass and metal tearing at his flesh. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday. See him walking to Calvary, the blood dripping from his body. See the cross crashing down on his back as he stumbles beneath the load. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The sky grows dark. The earth begins to tremble. And he who knew no sin became sin for us. Holy God, who will not abide with sin, pours out his wrath on the perfect sacrificial lamb who cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What a horrible cry. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Jesus is hanging on the cross. Heaven is weeping. Hell is parting, right? It's Friday. The demons and Satan thinks they have won. They have put God to death. But Sunday is coming. He says, now it's Sunday. The lamb that was silent before the slaughter is not the resurrected lion, is now the resurrected lion from the tribe of Judah. For he is not here, the angel says. He is risen indeed. It's Sunday, and the crucified and resurrected Christ has defeated death, hell, sin, and the grave. It's Sunday, and now everything has changed because it's Sunday. Christ was triumphant. Over Satan, over shame, over our deed of indebtedness, over hell itself. We who are in Christ are victorious with Christ. 
That is our identity. We are victors in Christ. Let me end with this. As I had mentioned a few times, last night was a hard night. Trevon Jackson, with about six seconds left, gets the ball. He dribbles down the court. I think everybody knew he was going to shoot. This is usually the Badgers' game plan, right? If we need one last shot, have him dribble down the court, then he'll pull back and put up a jumper, right? And so there, the ball is inbounded to our champion. He dribbles down the court. We're waiting and seeing, will he win the game? He dribbles down. He pulls up. He puts the shot up, and it misses. Our champion has failed us. If you were like me, it was devastating. Immediately, we were all losers, except for the Rogers, who are Kentucky fans. Boo. But the rest of us were losers. Trevon Jackson, after the game, said this. He goes, sometimes we don't know why things happen in life, especially when you believe in it and it doesn't happen. For thousands and thousands and thousands of years, the people of God believed in the champion that was yet to come, believed in the Messiah, the Christ that was going to come and accomplish their final victory. Their hope was not put to shame. Their champion was victorious. We have a champion, Jesus Christ. And when Satan accuses us of our sin, when he holds up that deed of indebtedness, when he undermines our identity and tells us we are worthless, when he tells us we are losers, all we need to do is point to the cross and say, scoreboard, scoreboard. Who has won? We have won. And this victory does not last for a year. This victory lasts for all eternity because in Christ, we win. In Christ, we are victorious over death. We are victorious over the grave, not just for a momentary time, but for all eternity. And so let me ask you, what is your identity? What defines you? Christian, you are a filled one, filled with the fullness of Christ. Christian, you are dead. Your sinful nature has been cut off, circumcised, buried. Christian, you are alive in Christ. Christ lives in you. Christian, you are forgiven in full. Your debt has been paid, nailed to the cross. Christian, you are victorious in Christ over all the powers and all the principalities of this world. No matter what your circumstances, no matter what the world tells you, this is your identity in Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that what defines us is not our job, that what defines us is not our relational status. What defines us is not how many, how many friends we have on Facebook. What defines us is not how successful we are, how rich we are, how popular we are, how pretty we are. What defines us is you, because you live in us. God, I pray for those here this morning that maybe are facing discouragement, those who maybe don't think that they are valuable. Let them be reminded that they were made in your image, God. And that if they trust in Christ for their salvation, that Christ lives in them. That their identity has been accomplished at the cross. That they are forgiven ones. That they are victorious ones. That they are cherished ones by you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.